Frank, and I'm one of the pastors, and I, um, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, I know this time of year, there's a lot of competing interests on Saturday nights. We have office parties and all kinds of Christmas parties, and I know many of our people are going to be watching online, so a shout out to you guys. Uh, but I just welcome you to Remnant. I hope you find this to be a safe place where you can explore your relationship with God, whether you don't have one and you're just trying to figure out who this God is, or whether you're trying to figure out how to go deeper. Uh, that's really where all of us are, and I talk about it almost every week. We're a group of people, and, and something in our life happened, and we begin to have a desire to want to understand God. And maybe it was the circumstances of our life. Maybe it was a specific event. But all of us get to a point where we just have to know. And, and so we, we get drawn to places like this. And we ask questions. And we try to find God. And we want to learn more about Him. So we come to a church. And we begin to study the Word. And we begin to learn the stories. And we think that we're going to discover him by gaining information. But, but the weird thing is, as we begin to gain that information, we begin to understand that there's a very real God who speaks to us and wants a relationship with us and talks to us and begins to change us. And so we, we find out that while we're looking for information, we actually discovered a relationship. And as part of that relationship, we begin to fall in love with this God who created us. And we begin to understand who we are and why we're here and what life is about. And it's an incredible journey. So we just come back every week trying to learn more so that we can surrender more. So he can change us on the inside. And so we just come back week after week. We thank him for what he's done for us. We, we worship him. At the same time, we learn about him. And every week, we are just blown away. Because he speaks to us. And I want to share with you just a little bit about this series. We're in a series of Revelation. We're, I don't know, in like week 20-something. We've, we've been talking about end times and Revelation. And, and I have to tell you, I've really been trying to finish this series before Christmas. And I've been talking to God for the last two months. God, look, we've got to have time for a Christmas series. We need to do a Christmas series because it's Christmas. I mean, look at the lights and the trees and everybody's happy. And, and you want me to preach about bold judgments in the middle of Christmas. And I have to tell you, this week I'm really struggling because we're at the point where God is going to pour out his final wrath on the world. And I'm surrounded by Christmas trees. <laughs> and this week God said something to me that I think he wants me to share, which is... Why are you trying to keep me in the manger? You see, Christmas doesn't mean anything if I don't come back, judge the world, set it straight, open the scrolls, and create a new relationship with people. You see, it's the second coming that makes the first coming important. Without revelation, without understanding who Jesus is, without understanding the mission that he's on, then Christmas really means nothing. Because Jesus didn't come just to live a sinless life and die on the cross as the Lamb of God. He did that so he would be worthy to open the scroll. To bring the judgments that are necessary for a holy and righteous God to set our relationship correct with him. So the Revelation story is as much a story about us and about God and about Jesus' purpose as Christmas. And so as we begin to think about what Jesus did in his life. Remember that the revelation we talk about, it's one revelation. It's not revelations, it's one. And the revelation is Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I think we're supposed to see this Christmas is that we have to take him all. 
We can't keep him in the manger. We can't keep him as a sinless human. We can't keep him on the cross. We can't keep him as resurrected God. He is also the God who brings judgment on the world and who will return full of God's wrath and fury to set things right as justice. And that's as much of the Christmas story as anything else we study. So as I've been processing this, I've really been trying to look at this paradigm of God and how he puts things that we would think would be one way sort of against the other. Because God loves righteousness, he has to hate sin and unbelief. Because he's holy, he has to deal with sin in a just manner. He cannot love truth unless he hates lies. He cannot love goodness unless he hates wickedness. He can't reward unless he also punishes. We're going to see that we've been studying the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And and those were poured out over time. But with the bold judgments, God is, is finishing his wrath. He's finishing his judgment. He pours these out in rapid succession. It's his final response to sin. To bring about the destruction of anything not surrendered to Jesus. This is important to understand. Before God can rebuild a holy relationship with people, he has to go through and get rid of anything that has a sin nature. Anything that has a sinful character to it. Anything in creation that is not God-honoring. Anything that's in our lives that's not God-honoring. Anybody on earth who has rejected Jesus, he has got to do a cleansing. And that's part of what we're seeing in the end times. It's his final response to sin. He has to destroy in order to rebuild. Not only physically, but spiritually as well. And since these final judgments are poured out on people who are incredibly still rejecting God, they are the most severe that we're going to see. The most thorough, the most intense, the least restrained, and the most devastating of all of God's judgments in Revelation. It tells us something about his heart. Remember I told you we have a hard time with the wrath of God because we underestimate his holiness. Remember we talked about this, that we struggle when we look at the wrath of God because we underestimate his holiness. Because we underestimate his holiness, we don't fully understand how offensive sin really is to a holy God. And because of that, the wrath of God in response to that sin to us seems extreme because we've underestimated his holiness. And by doing that, we've undervalued what Jesus did on the cross. So we look at at this time, and it reveals to us how those who are just at the end, just absolutely stubbornly and persistently rejecting Christ and worshiping themselves. Think about who's going to receive these bold judgments. We've been on a journey here. They've seen the rapture. Seven seals, seven trumpet judgments. Remember, they knew those were from God. Those weren't just natural things that were happening. They knew God was bringing those upon the earth. They saw signs in the heavens. They saw signs on earth. They saw hundreds of prophetic fulfillments. 
They saw powerful testimony from the two witnesses. They saw powerful testimony from 144,000 Jewish people who God had set aside to witness during the tribulation. They've witnessed thousands of martyrs dying for their faith rather than surrender to the Antichrist. They've seen thousands of believers witnessing for Christ during the tribulation. And even an angel of heaven flies over and calls them to return to God. And still they are rejecting God. Now notice that with the seal and the trumpet judgments, God limited them to a third of the earth. Remember? But now that the bowls are poured out, there's no limit anymore. The bowl judgments are complete with full destruction. These bowls are full, overflowing, God's wrath cooked up in a kitchen of heaven, literally being poured out onto the earth and the sun and the air. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So let's go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came among the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. A loud voice from the temple. We hear that 20 times in Revelation. This is clearly the voice of God. We know that because he's the only one left in the temple at this point. Remember Revelation 15, 8. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished. Notice that those with, the, with God's mark are protected from this first bowl judgment. Just like those were in Egypt with the blood of the Lamb. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing that died that was in the sea. Remember, we saw the Nile River once being turned to blood. Why? Because the Egyptians saw the Nile River as their source of life. Remember that each plague was basically attacking an Egyptian god that they had used to replace the real god. So when they started working the Nile, God said, okay, I'll just turn it to blood. I'll show you who God really is. And so God turned the Nile to blood and it brought forth death, not life. He wanted them to know that the Nile's not the source of life. He is. And notice that in the Bible, blood is often associated with life. Jesus poured out his blood to bring us life. The blood of the sacrifices was cleansing. Yet the sea here, notice it didn't turn to ordinary blood. It became like the blood of a corpse. Stagnant. Congealed. Clotted. Odorous. And I can tell you it's gross. It has a horrible smell. This is not blood that brings life. This is blood that has already brought death. The sea brought forth death. Everything in it dies. Think about what that would be like. In Revelation, I mean in Genesis, God gave life to everything that swims in the sea. Every incredible thing that we see in all the TV shows. And now in Revelation, all of that is turned into putrid pools of the worst red tide you could ever imagine. Congealed, thick, smelly, old blood full of dead fish carcasses. 
Millions of dead eyes just staring off, representing the wickedness of man. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was? For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now all the fresh water on earth has been turned to blood. The same thing that happened in the ocean is now being poured out on all the fresh water of the world. No water to drink. No water to wash the sores that they will be developing. No, no water to clean anything. No water to quench their thirst. And pretty soon the sun's going to get scorching hot. It's hard to imagine that a God of love and a God of mercy who came down here for us, put himself on a cross, died for us, is also the same God that brings these kind of horrible judgments onto his creation. This is going to be horrible. God, how could you do this to people? You created them. You love them. And then it's as if the angel answers the question that we're beginning to ask. An angel calls out and says, yes, while these judgments are horrible, they're also just. God's judgment of sinners is unquestionably righteous because he's the Holy One. And although his wrath is terrifying and deadly, it is just, it is deserved, and it is an appropriate and measured response to sinners' rejection of him. In addition, the angel reminds us that these are not just those who rejected Christ. Those people are long gone. These are people who are Christ-hating, Satan-worshipping. He also reminds us that these are the ones who persecuted and killed believers during the tribulation. Remember those at the altar that we read about? The martyrs who cried out for God to judge what happened to them? Revelation 6, 9. He opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long they cried out. Now. Remember the two witnesses? God does. Revelation eleven seven. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Do you remember the multitude of martyrs? God does. We learn that the nations at this point are enraged and they're drunk with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Revelation 17, 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. It was full of blasphemous names. Had seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We'll unpack that verse in a few minutes. Revelation 7, 9. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is on the throne, and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? He says, Sir, you know. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. All these people, because of their faith in Christ, were martyred by other people who hate Jesus. There has to be justice for that. They have been crying out to God from the altar, when are you going to bring justice? And the answer is, right now. I'm bringing justice for the thousands and millions who are martyred in my name. I'm bringing justice for those who were the two witnesses and for the 144,000 and for every other believer who was killed and martyred by these people purely because they love Jesus. God essentially gave them what they want. You want to get drunk with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus? Here, this is what you want. Everything you have on earth now to drink is blood. Paul warned them, Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And we're going to see in a few chapters a response of those who cried out for justice. After God brings justice, all those people who've been crying out to him in Revelation 19 say this, After this I heard what seemed to be loud voices of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of his servants. So all those who cry out for justice will find one day God in his justice will bring forth what they've been clamoring for and begging for. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Notice that the first three bowls are poured out on the earth, but this one is poured out on the sun. The sun, which originally brought forth life, is now God's instrument for death. Now, we talked, I'm just going to diverge a little bit. We talked in this series about how Revelation is relatively easy to understand if you've read the other 65 books. That if you try to read it in and of itself, it's very confusing, but there, there is a, a consistent Narrative from Genesis to Revelation that runs throughout the Bible. And everything we see in Revelation has been introduced somewhere else in the Bible. We've talked about that over and over and over. And we're going to see that these final bold judgments, prophets have been talking about these judgments for years. Isaiah. 
the earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Huge solar flares from the sun will scorch the earth. And yet those on the earth, knowing this is from God, still curse him, still refuse to return to God. Up until this point, the Antichrist is the only one that has been described as blaspheming. And yet here, the entire world, those who are left, begin to curse him. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their disease. Now, now commentators have disagreed over exactly what this bowl gets poured out on. Some think that it's the actual throne of the beast. Others think it's the capital city of Babylon. Others think it's the entire kingdom. It brings darkness to the entire kingdom. Regardless of where this bowl is actually dumped, the result is that darkness engulfs the entire earth and the Antichrist worldwide kingdom. The beast will be as helpless before the power of God as everyone else. The prophet Joel told us about this day. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness... Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor again will, be af- will, be, will again after them through the years of all the generations. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Think about the cumulative effect of all these things that are happening. Painful sores, fouled oceans, no drinking water, intense heat, now engulfed in blackness, unbearable misery. Yet, incredibly, the unbelieving people of the world still refuse to turn to God. This is the last reference in the Bible of their unwillingness to repent. The first five plagues were God's final call to repentance. They've rejected that and now they're confirmed in their unbelief. The last two bowls that contain the most severe of all the judgments are going to be poured out on hard, rebellious hearts who hate Jesus. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, the Euphrates River runs north and south through Iraq. And the Bible says that that in this sixth bowl, the water, which is mostly blood, is dried up. Why? Well, it turns out that part of the Battle of Armageddon is a very large army from the east has to get to the Holy Land. By drying out the Euphrates, they're allowed to march across it. And you can see that anybody that wants to get to Jerusalem, which is on the bottom left of that slide, has to go across the Euphrates River. We'll talk about that path a little bit more in a minute. 
Now, it's interesting. Isaiah talked about this moment. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came from the land of Egypt. Now remember, in end times, all the nations have to get to the valley of Armageddon. They're going to come from the east, and they're going to follow what was known as the Via Maris, the way of the sea, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Rivers dried up, the path is cleared for the armies to get to Armageddon. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Lord Almighty. Jesus' words, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go around naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at a place in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now notice that these demonic spirits come out of what we talked about last week, this false demonic trinity. Satan, the father. Antichrist, the son. False prophet, the spirit. And out of their mouths come these demonic-like creatures. <clears throat> now from their mouth, I don't know that necessarily they came out of their mouth. It, it probably more likely means that under their influence, under the influence of their spoken word, these frogs, which are unclean animals, they're not real frogs. These are unclean spirits like frogs. And they're going to perform signs. Now notice where they go. They go out to the kings of the whole world. So demonic spirits are sent out from the demonic trinity to the kings of the world. Why? To assemble them for battle. We have to come together to fight God. To gather for the battle on the great day of the Lord. We've read that before as well. Joel, thousands of years before. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and they've divided up my land. All these figures speak and the kings of the earth rally around them. And they go to a very specific place called the Valley of Armageddon in the Jezreel Valley. Now, you will see on that map, the Jezreel Valley runs sort of uh, left to right, headed down across the slide. Megiddo is circled there in the middle. Megiddo is sort of a, a choke point of the Valley of Jezreel. Anybody who wanted to go from Europe or Asia down towards Egypt had to go through this valley. It's a very familiar valley, a place of many wars, of many struggles. Joel 3, 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations." 
Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. They will head from the east through Assyria to this valley, this area. They'll come down through the area of Damascus, and they'll follow what's known as the Via Maris, the way of the sea. They'll go down the west side of the Sea of Galilee through this valley of Jezreel, which is a broad, wide valley. They'll assemble in there a huge, huge army near the area of Megiddo, which is a choke point for everybody traveling south through that valley. The battle of Armageddon comes from the word har, meaning mountain or hill, and Megiddo. They're saying is this battle is going to occur in the valley next to the hill of Megiddo. And you look across that valley, it is massive. I've been there a couple times. It's hosted many great battles in the past, foreshadowing what to come. Josiah fought the Egyptians there. Deborah fought there. Alexander the Great fought there. When Patton saw this valley, he said it was the greatest battlefield for tank battles he's ever seen in his life. The battle will be over almost as soon as it begins, as Jesus will rescue his people and defeat his enemies. The resulting slaughter of the world's armies will be unimaginable, with blood spattered several feet high, and perhaps running in streams through a distance of 200 miles, the Bible says. The sixth bowl sets the stage, but before that brief battle, the seventh and final plague will hit. The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such that has never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountain was to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven onto people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Notice where this bowl is poured out. Not on earth, not on the sun. It's poured out in the air. God's been cleansing the world of the effect of Satan. He's cleansed the sun and the earth and the, the domains of Satan's demons and the seas and the rivers. And now he removes Satan's influence from the last place on earth, the air. The voice from the throne is God. His solemn declaration, it is done, announces the climax of the final day of the Lord. It's perfect tense. It describes a completed action that will have ongoing effects. Similar to Jesus' final words on the cross, it is finished. God's judgment of Christ on Calvary provided salvation for those who repent. And the judgment at the end brings condemnation for those who refuse to repent. It's done. It's finished, God said. It's accomplished. Notice that Jesus' words also were followed by an earthquake in Jerusalem. We've seen many earthquakes on the earth, but the Bible says this one, there's never going to be another one like this one. 
The city split into three parts. Massive, massive earthquakes as the earth is becoming a shell now, wobbling through space. And God gives Babylon the full cup of his wrath. And we'll talk about that in a minute. He is going to pour out his wrath on those who have been misleading the world. Earthquake will be the most powerful one we've ever seen. Haggai talked about this moment. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. The writer of Hebrews said at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things cannot, that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jerusalem will be split into three parts. In addition, Jerusalem will be elevated and the rest of the world will be flattened. Interesting. How do we know that? Zechariah. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that half the mount will move north, half will move south. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Remen, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. It shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem will dwell in security. Thus the purpose of the earthquake as it relates to Jerusalem is not to judge the city, but to enhance it. As God begins putting things together in the end times, his city, his jewel will rise up and the rest of the world will be flattened, will be flat. It says water will cover the islands and the mountains. The final effect of the earthquake is going to be to set up the earth for the millennial rule of Christ. The original creation was sort of a gentle rolling topography of the world. Now Jerusalem will be the highest point in the world. Jeremiah, at this time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their evil heart. God is restoring that which was broken. And yet, the next thing that happens, hailstones, a hundred pounds each, begin to fall from heaven. And people still curse God. Now, now, here's what people say all the time. I hear this from people who are non-believers, and maybe this is you, and it's totally cool if it is. But let me just try to explain something. People would say, you know what? If God would just give us a sign. If God would just show up in the heaven and say, hey, I'm here. If he would do that, then the whole world would believe him. God is real. Why didn't he just tell us? They're missing that he's revealing himself to us every day, all around us, all the time. Signs don't bring people's hearts to Christ. 
We've even seen in this study and others that Satan can bring about miraculous signs. Those who reject the wonder and the glory and the majesty of Jesus, who reject his grace and his salvation, are not going to be convinced by any sign, no matter how incredible it is. And that's really part of the story of Revelation. No matter how much God continues to prove that he's God, people still refuse to believe. And so now it's done. And then in chapters 17 and 18, John once again pauses. Seven bowls have been poured out. He wants us to give us some more information, as he's done several times in this book. He starts talking about Babylon. Remember, we talked about threads that run through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So to understand Babylon, you've got to go back to Genesis. Remember, the people wanted to be God. They didn't want the earth to ever flood again. So they said, let us get together. Let us build a tower to heaven. Okay, we don't need God. We won't let him flood us again. We'll find our own way to heaven. And so that's basically what they did. They wanted to be God. And that mindset, that Babel mindset of I can be God and therefore don't need God is what throughout the Bible is referred to as Babylon. The idea of a worldview that is the place of Babylon is repeated throughout the Bible. In fact, Babylon is mentioned 287 times in Scripture, more than any other city or place except Jerusalem. And Babylon sometimes is referred to a physical city. Sometimes it refers to um, a... uh, thought process, most of the time it refers to a way of thinking. Sometimes a prostitute, sometimes wickedness. But whenever Babylon is mentioned in the Bible, it's always used as an example of the extreme opposition to the ways of God. Babylon is a wicked city full of sin and lust and sexual perversions, full of people who hate God, hate God's laws, following their own perversions. Satan lives there, and whether people realize it or not, they are worshiping him. And yet, contrasted, Jerusalem is a jewel full of God's people. God's laws manifested as God's temple and housing God's presence. Throughout the Bible, there's a constant contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon. God's ways, Satan's ways. To those familiar with the Old Testament, Babylon is associated with organized idolatry and persecution of people from God. In fact, in John's time, when he wrote this book and the ones before it, they often refer to Rome as Babylon. Much like we would refer to Las Vegas. Yeah, Las Vegas. And when we say, wow, that's like Las Vegas, we all know that what we mean is that's a godless place. There's not a lot of God things happening there. But Babylon is also not only a city, but often in Scripture, Babylon is a way of thinking. It is a world view. Babylon is the home of humanism. We can't build a tower to heaven ourselves. We'll just make sure God can't flood us again. We know what's best. We don't need God. We can do our own thing. 
Humanism is the theology and worldview of Satan. Don't worship God, worship yourself. Don't worship the creator, worship the creation. We don't depend on God, we can trust ourselves. God has given us, if he exists, he's given us all that we need. We just need to understand ourselves and find ourselves. God doesn't determine what's right or acceptable, we do. Babylon was present in John's day that he referred to often as Rome. The first sermon of this series, way back about months and months ago, the first thing I talked about when I talked about Revelation was humanism, the apostasy that the world has bought, the theology that has predated and set the world up for the arrival of the Antichrist. The idea that we don't need God, we can be God. That we just need to reach our full human potential. That we can solve all things ourselves. That science can explain everything. We don't need a God because we can be our own God. And if we can be our own God, we can reach the full potential of humanism. Today, one of the key signs of the end times is that humanism has become predominant in our world. In our society, we not only worship ourselves, we reject God. People reject anything that reminds them of God. And it's not that the world just doesn't believe in God. Those days are long over. The world hates him and whatever he stands for and those who stand for him. So now here we are, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls have been poured out. The earth has felt the sustained fury of God. The earth is a wounded, cracked ball that's barely being held together. God has poured out his wrath on all of creation. And he's going to start over one day and build a new earth and a new heaven. But the work is not yet completed. He's got a few things that have to be destroyed. Things that can't go forward into the millennium. And one of the things that he must judge and end forever is the lie of humanism. And in chapter 17, this worldview, this thought of humanism is represented as Babylon. Okay, so it's important when we read chapter 17 to understand that Babylon is a worldview against God. In chapter 18, we're going to study that next week, Babylon is an actual city. Okay, but for tonight, in chapter 17, we basically begin to learn about Babylon. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The great prostitute. Often in the Bible, God uses the idea of a prostitute to show us how we lust after false gods. How they offer what seems to be enticing, what seems to be the real deal, but it's always fake. It's always empty, and it always leaves us wanting something different. False religion is often in the Bible referred to as a harlot. It's the ultimate appeal to our sensuality to love ourselves, to seek humanism instead of God. She attracts and seems to offer us exactly what we desire with no consequences. We see in this, Babylon sits on many waters. That means she's presiding over many nations. Babylon is universal. This worldview of humanism has tied the world into one religion that embraces everybody. 
Unitarianism and humanism. The false prostitute is luring people. And it will become the predominant religion of end times, if it's not already. The inhabitants of the earth are made drunk. Religious Babylon intoxicates the kings and the people. Karl Marx was actually partially right when he said religion is the opiate of the masses. Empty religion is the opiate of the masses. This new religion will be like a sexual lure. It will be something people will desire. You mean we don't have to follow God's laws? We can make up our own morals, our own standards. We can be our own God. We can reach our own full potential. There's no judgment waiting for us because there's no God. Or if there is a God, he recognizes how great we are and we can be our own God. So uh, this is an incredible religion. Anybody from anywhere can believe whatever they want with no consequences. Oh, we're just amazing humans, aren't we? And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus." The harlot rides the same beast that we've seen before, the beast of Revelation 13.1, which is the Antichrist. Her position, that of riding the beast, indicates on one hand she's supported by the political power of the Antichrist. On the other hand, she has a dominant role and can control him. Her association with blasphemy and the dragon's uh, beast are clearly seen from God's perspective. But to the people of earth, she's going to look religious. It's going to look like a great religion. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. No more judgment. Tolerance for everybody. She's clothed in purple, gold, and precious stones. Emblems of luxury. She represents scarlet, which is a sign of government. And yet she offers idolatry and sin. The name on her forehead identifies her. Roman prostitutes often would write their name on a headband engraved on their head. She is the mother of false belief, false teaching. She's the embodiment of Satan's own religion, the religion of the world system, one world strong with a philosophy that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. Verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly, not marveled, wondered is a better word. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Angel says, look, I'll tell you who she is. She's writing the Antichrist system. Antichrist is using her to trip trip the world so he can develop power. The beast, the Antichrist that was, is not, and is about to be from the bottomless pit will go to destruction. We've seen that before, right? Remember in Revelation chapter 1? 
write these things down. Those that are, those that, or those that have been, those that are, and those that are about to take place. Jesus said, look, I'm the living one who was, who is, and who will be. The Antichrist is once again trying to do a cheap representation of Christ. He says, look, I, I'm the one who was, I won't be, and then I will be. What's that talking about? Well, it talks about how the Antichrist was, is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. It's a reference to the head wound that we've learned about. How he will die of a head wound and resurrect, and he'll appear to be Christ, or Christ-like. It's a parody of the resurrection of Christ. And then we begin to see... This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is yet to come, and one does come. He remains only a little while. Seven heads are seven mountains. Now many quickly and easily associate this with Rome. Rome is the city that sits around seven mountains. It's known throughout the world, always has been. And for that reason, many people believe that Rome could be the actual Babylon. We'll talk about that next week. But it's certainly associated with Babylon. It's a word for corruption. Five have fallen. That refers to the five world empires before John's day. Egypt, then Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. One refers to the world empire of John's day, which will be the Roman Empire. And the one yet to come is the world empire of end times, the revitalized revival of the Roman Empire that we've talked about. It says this seventh will quickly be overtaken by an eighth and will become the state of the Antichrist. In other words, the Antichrist will use the religion of the day in the first three and a half years of tribulation... And he will turn and get people to reject the religion of the day and worship him. In my view, the universal humanistic religion of the end times will be short-lived according to God and will be replaced by the worship of the Antichrist. Now this has led many, many, including myself, to speculate that the false prophet will point people to the Antichrist. And there is relatively good evidence to suggest that this reborn religion will come out of the Catholic Church. And I'm going to tread carefully here, okay? But this is really important to understand. There will be false churches in the end times. There will be false Catholic churches. There will be false Presbyterian churches. There will be false Baptist churches. There will be false churches. It seems like God is telling us that this false religion is going to be based out of Rome. It also seems like that this false religion could come out of the Roman Empire and particularly the Catholic Church. Crazy, right? In 2003, Pope John Paul II began a bizarre involvement with the approval of other anti-Christian religions. In addressing a prayer gathering of Christians, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, and others, Pope John Paul II told participants that their efforts were unleashing profound spiritual energies in the world and bringing about a new climate of peace. 
The Pope pledged that the Catholic Church intends to share in and promote such ecumenical and interreligious cooperation. The Catholic Review commented on this and said, The unity of religion promoted by the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, and approved by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is not a goal to be achieved immediately, but a day may come when the love and compassion with which both Buddha and Christ preach so eloquently will unite the world in a common effort to save humanity from senseless destruction and lead towards the light in which we all believe. Today, Pope Francis is continuing that trend at an accelerated pace. Another sign in my mind of the end times. January 2016, the Vatican releases an extremely disturbing video in which Pope Francis declared that all of the world's major religions are seeking God or meeting God in different ways, and that ultimately we are all children of God. The video features leaders from various major religions, and they're shown declaring fidelity to their gods. First, we see a female Buddhist cleric tell us, I have confidence in the Buddha. That's followed by a Jewish rabbi declaring, I believe in God. As the video goes on, a Catholic priest announces, I believe in Jesus Christ. And last of all, an Islamic leader boldly declares, I believe in God, Allah. November 2015, Pope Francis declared that fundamentalism, even Christian fundamentalism, is a sickness during remarks in which he stressed the similarity of major religions. September 2015, Pope Francis traveled to New York City to deliver a speech that kicked off a conference during which the United Nations unveiled a new universal agenda for humanity. June 2014, for the first time in the history of Catholicism, Pope Francis authorized Islamic prayers and reading from the Quran at the Vatican. In ancient times, this would have been considered blasphemy, but today nobody even really notices when something like that happens. March 2013, during his first ecumenical meeting as Pope, Francis made it clear that he believes that Christians and Muslims both worship one God. I then greet and cordially thank all of you, dear friends, belonging to other religious traditions, first of all, Muslims who worship the one God, living and merciful, and call upon Him in prayer, and all of you. I really appreciate your presence. In it, I see tangible signs of the will to grow in mutual esteem and cooperation for the common good of all humanity. Revelation 17. And for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to the destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they're to receive authority as kings in one hour together with the beast. These are all of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. What he's saying is, look, after this world religion comes together, these ten nations or so that make up the European empire, after they get together and form one world religion of humanism, the Antichrist is going to turn on that religion and declare himself as God. Okay? He is the eighth. Ten kingdoms will come forth out of the European powers. They'll make war against Christ. And there's little doubt that the European Union claims to be a successor to the ancient Roman Empire. The European Union started in 1957 when six European nations met to talk about combining their nuclear, coal, and economic resources. They met together in Rome and signed the Treaty of Rome, beginning of the present EU. In many places in Europe, the European Union flag is as prominent as any national flag. Whatever their identity, the actions are clear. These ten nations are going to join with and give their power and authority to the Antichrist. 
They will be deceived by the demons that were frogs that were released to bring everybody together. They will bring themselves to a battle against Christ. They will surrender to the Antichrist. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with Him, that's us, are called and chosen and faithful. These ten nations are going to bring wars against Jesus, but it's no match. He's going to beat them with literally no sweat. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. So these ten nations are going to turn against humanism. They'll make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw in the great city had dominion over the earth. The waters, the, the, the people of nations. The harlot is going to be connected to the beast and his government. World leaders are going to hate her. Christ, or the Antichrist will declare himself as God. They will turn their powers against Jesus, and they will set up the battle of Armageddon. And, an, and so we've seen this horrible representation of the Trinity. We've seen a great parody of the resurrection of Christ. We've seen one who was and is not and is to come. And we've seen this gross misrepresentation of the church. God's judgment is complete. It is thorough. It is final. It is finished. There's only one more thing to do before cleansing the world, and that's to deal with the unholy city of Babylon, which we'll talk about next week. We're in this series looking at this incredible God. We see the world as we know it being destroyed. We see people rejecting Christ. We know what's going to happen because God tells us. And every week we ask ourselves, why does he want us to know this? Why tell us? Why not just do it? What purpose is there in telling us these events that are going to happen? Well, if we read this book and we know what's going to happen and we sit by passively. You see, see, this book is not here to give us information. This book is here to motivate us to go save the world. God reveals what's going to happen in Revelation to show us that he is in charge. He's been in charge from the beginning. He's working out his plans. And the world's going to be divided into two people. Those who love him and surrender to him and those who reject him. And with every seal, with every trumpet, with every bowl, they're going to become more and more and more clarified. But we're here now. We know what's going to happen. Everything in God's book has been true. We know this is going to happen. And yet... We look across the world, even people who aren't believers understand that we're in end times. We should be reaching out to people. We should be sharing with them the truth that's in this book. This book should motivate us as believers not to sit back and go, whew, I hope we get raptured before all this. This book should get us to the point where we are willing to give our lives to save those around us. 
We're going to finish the book of Revelation in the next two weeks. Tonight was long, I realize, but it's an important part of what we're dealing with. There's a worldview that has to be destroyed. We have to destroy it in our own time, in our own lives. We have to reject humanism now. God will destroy it later. Let's pray. God, um, it's so incredible to me when I read your word and I see all the times you told us what was going to happen through the prophets and then it happens. God, there can be little doubt that we're living in the end times. There can be little doubt that you are working out your plan. We're seeing signs in the heavens. We're seeing signs on earth. The world is being set up exactly as you said it would be. And you have us here in this moment for a purpose. God, if our hearts are beating, you're allowing us to be here for the purpose of sharing your message with other people, of living lives that reflect you to other people, and speaking truth into a darkness of humanism and universalism. God, in Acts, the disciples, during some desperate times, when they first started the new church, they prayed one thing. Lord, give us boldness. And Lord, I echo those prayers for our church. If we're ever, ever in a time where we need boldness, it's now. So God, pour your spirit out on this place. Move our hearts and build in us a boldness to share the reason why we have the hope that we have. We just love you and we thank you that you show us that part of Christmas is also your second coming as well. And in that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a couple quick announcements because I know that was really way too long. Um, But thanks for persevering. A couple of really great things have happened this week and I just want to bring you up to date. We've had an incredible experience as a staff and as leaders um, with this incredible group of people uh, down at Ashton. Um, And if you don't know, we're in the middle of two churches merging and a lot of meetings and a lot of stuff. And we're basically celebrating what God's doing. And that's really the cool thing. Uh, We've had an army of people to move the cafe this week. And Tammy's done things I can't even imagine how they got done with dozens of people who helped, including our youth and other people. It's been incredible to watch. And here's what's incredible. Everybody from our church says, those Ashton folks, they're the nicest people. And they're generally happy that we're here. And what inspires me about the whole thing is that every time we're together, what you hear people going is, can you believe how great God is? I mean, he knew we needed a building. He knew we needed a place. He knew they needed to be involved. It was incredible. And so we're just walking around going, yay, God. And even though it's a lot of work and even though there's a lot of things going on, it is a complete and total worship experience. And I can't wait to see what God's going to do. I think he's just getting started. So tomorrow morning, Ashton is going to have the first Sunday of every month, they have a potluck after church. Um, Many of us are headed that direction tomorrow morning. Uh, I want to invite you to go. It's a great chance to get to meet people, to see the campus, to see everybody, to see the new cafe and what's been done in the last week, which was crazy. Uh, but if you're available tomorrow morning, their services are at 10, 15, 10, 15. 
Um, and uh, after that, there's a potluck. So bring them some incredible food, and let's begin to uh, get to know each other in a better and more incredible way, okay? Happy Bucket is in the back. Uh, if you feel like you are led by God to contribute to what we're doing here, uh, please do so. We'll be back here next week and the following week, and then after that, we are moving to Sunday mornings after Christmas Eve. So get your best caffeine together. Um, for about six months, I'll probably be saying tonight, 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 but we'll get it straight. If you know people who are looking for a place to worship, who are trying to understand this God, uh, please, now's a great time because everybody will be new. So we'll be able to do that, okay? All right, why don't you stand up for me? We have food in the back, by the way, so join us for that. If you're new, I would love to meet you. When you go this week, spend some time with God thinking about why it was necessary that this baby born in a manger had to become a warrior and that he did it for us. So as you go this week, be blessed. And let's celebrate Christmas knowing that we accept the entirety of Jesus and all that he represents and all that's revealed. And in that we can celebrate. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you back next week. Thanks.
Yeah, what's her move? <laughs> there is no one like her.